today as we finish, we are going to, um, I, I'll borrow from uh, Katie, our communications director, said this is kind of the day to put, if, if the series was a book, this is that final paragraph that kind of gives the, the ending and the end cap to it and says, um, you know, kind of some final things and some ideas. Um, if you were able to, uh, over the last, I think I had five submissions for question and answering, and I think that'll, that'll be about how many we can do. The good thing is they tend to be the typical questions that get asked um, uh, when it comes around the topic of sex and the Bible. And so I'll be doing that today. We'll just finish out the series today, and I want to do that by starting at the beginning. Quick drink break. If you remember at the very beginning, um, what I did is we mentioned that there were these four specific moments, or I mentioned that there were four specific moments in my life that I could look back in my history and say, like, these moments shaped me. They formed me somehow in what I believed about sexuality. And those four moments was this HBO documentary, if you remember, that I watched in the third grade. And the overall scope of this was trying to persuade me to normalize things um, as healthy human sexuality, casual sex, uh, pornography, masturbation, things like that. And so the whole idea was just this idea, this... um, I don't know if it was like a mini documentary, um, but this episode that I happened to catch after I watched a movie, and I was the only one up late at night, and there was this show on right afterwards. Then the second thing um, that I remember looking back on my life was a high school coach who was also normalizing casual sexuality, but also teaching in the midst of his kind of, uh, the way that he was speaking about it, just this idea that women or girls are here for fun, but don't let them derail your future, right? He was discipling me in misogyny, right? as a high schooler. And, and then the third thing was my mom jumping in and giving me one of those talks. And I, I told you all that that wasn't an off-topic um, thing for us. My mom was, uh, we were very comfortable. I know a lot of people aren't as comfortable talking about issues and topics like sexuality, but it was not an unusual conversation topic. But she kind of did one of those things where she said, hey, um, you're getting older. You're about to, you know, you're on the other side of puberty in your high school years, uh, and so here's some parameters that I want you to think about, which was um, having protection, and uh, the other thing being uh, the, the, the ethic of consent and telling me that when a woman says no, she means no. Um, and so that was something that, that contributed to that. And then the fourth thing uh, that just really hit me was when I went to church for the very first time at around 15 or 16 years old. And that was where I learned at the very first, like never had heard this before, never considered it, never thought about it ever once in my life that God had an opinion about sexuality and specifically my sexuality. Um, and, and I won't go back through the details of that story, but it was in that moment that I realized, because I had, I had mentioned to you that I, I decided I was going to go to church for about a year and really decide, do I believe this is real or do I not? And I wanted to give it a year because I felt like that was a fair shake, right? I'll go through all the seasons and kind of check it out as a high schooler. Um, and it was the first time where I had heard the idea that you shouldn't have sex before marriage. And it was a completely new thought to me and completely opposite to what I had been taught and or told by those other sources. Um, you know, just trying to figure out ways to develop a healthy framework for sexuality and ethics. And so I was challenged in that moment when I went to church for the first time because it was moving in opposition to the trajectory that I thought was good and healthy and right, and I was being responsible about the way I was going about this. And, and, and it hit me for the first time if I was going to follow God, if I was going to say yes to this whole thing on the other side of this year, that it was going to cost me something, that I was going to have to lay some things down, that I was going to have to surrender parts of me, and that it did not exclude my view or my framework or my understanding of sexuality, that God had something to say, and I was going to have to come into a, uh, 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 um, 
a surrendered heart that said, I am going to trust you, God, instead of me. Now, in the midst of that, I wanted to point out that God wasn't just correcting me, he was also healing me. He was saying, hey, this thing that you picked up along the way, that wasn't very healthy for you, and it's a bad way to think about women, or it's a bad way to think about sexuality. I'm going to adjust that for you. You have some things that need healing in your life that have happened here, brokenness that you picked up along the way that needs redemption. And so it wasn't like God was just this, um, this overlord who is saying, listen to me because I'm the one who knows everything, and so you have to surrender. It was a, hey, in surrendering to me, I am going to do some things that will create wholeness in your life. Submit to me in this area. Do, do you trust me, right? Not just do what I say, but do you trust me with this area of your life? And so my challenge to us as a church through this entire series has been have you, have you stopped to consider, bring to the forefront, or raise to the awareness, because usually it's operating behind the scenes, right? But, but have you raised to your awareness what are the things throughout your life that have discipled you and your view of sexuality? What are the things that have contributed to the framework that you now operate in? And then I asked you to decide, is that biblical? Is it not biblical? Is it extra biblical sources? Is it something that has come from the church? Is it something that has come from your parents or from somewhere else, friends, family? Because we're all being discipled to think a certain way about sexuality inside of our culture. What is morally permissive? What ethical values do we bring to the table when we're deciding how we're going to think about sexuality and what we're going to do? inside of that framework. And so I asked, um, what has been the main influence of formation inside of your heart in regards to sexuality that has shaped your soul, that has shaped your mind when it comes to this idea of sexuality? And then we gave these kind of seasons, uh, sorry, then we have this season wherein um, I felt that, that we needed to recognize that the church had mishandled some things. By that I mean the big C church, right? Had mishandled some things along the way, some topics maybe that was over, maybe a heavier hand than was necessary when we talked about purity culture. Then we, we talked about how that often this topic is avoided and, and the culture will just jump in and fill up that void if the church doesn't disciple its people on how the Bible speaks on these issues. And perhaps you've recognized that the church in its attempt to guide us wasn't any different than the culture. That was kind of my, uh, maybe my conclusion as I looked and, and, and um, entered into the church world at the time when the purity culture was at its height. And I realized that it's actually the same values as the culture. They're just working themselves out in a different way here. But all along this journey, what I've tried to maintain is this consistent message that God has something to say, and will you trust him? That there are other voices that have spoken into your life. Can you recognize those and decide whether or not they were good for you, whether or not they were bad for you, whether or not it was something else that was shaping your sexual formation, or was it Jesus? And that God all along has had something to say about this, and are you going to trust him with that? And I want to deepen that understanding today and recognize that God wants to be the main voice, not just a voice, but the main voice in the formation of who you are in every single part of your life, including sexuality. I'll get back to the questions um, here at the end, uh, and I've kind of organized them in a way that I think makes sense to go on. But I want us to first turn to the scripture, and this is gonna sound like maybe a generic verse that if you've been in a Christian world, you've heard this one a lot. Um, but go ahead and open to Romans 12. We're gonna read Romans 12, one and two. 
even have it memorized, but let me read it to you. Romans 12, 1 and 2. It says there, For I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. I also want to read to you from Corinthians 10. This was kind of a later edition that I threw in there. But it says this, 1 Corinthians 10, 23, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. And of course, Paul later on in Romans 14 delves into this a little bit more, and I'll refer to that later on and give some more explanation to that um, when it makes sense here in the sermon. But what I want us to see is, as you listen to that Romans verse, as you listen to this way in which we are to be shaped, that our spiritual formation in general is meant to operate, at first it seems like kind of this generic text that I'm just throwing out there, but what I want to do is to continually point us back to a couple of things. One, coming from Romans 12, is that we receive God's mercy, right? The second one is that we are also called to submit ourselves, including our desires, our ambitions, our bodies, to God as a sacrifice in worship. That we are to recognize there is a pattern in this world, and we are meant to reject that pattern. Instead, be transformed or renewed and inside of our hearts, whatever our minds and hearts are being shaped by in the world, to be renewed over and over again by the word of God and the authority of Jesus. And then we'll be able to discern, that's the promise at the end, to discern what is God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. So we're called to move into a direction of Christian formation with our sexuality. Um, I love uh, one of the pastors um, that I have referred to just because I I think he's got a a strong academic understanding. He's in New York, and so he has um, an audience that demands this kind of uh, high academic um, research uh, inside of his scripture, or sorry, inside of his sermons. And and so I'm going to quote from him like I did last week, but here today on a different subject. Um, And so what he does is he poses two ways in which formation doesn't do so well when it comes to sexuality, and he gives these formulas like this, morality plus willpower almost never works. Let me say it again, morality, whatever your, your version of morality is, plus willpower, your sheer ability to adhere to it almost never works. He says, so if that's the ethic that you're going to rely on, you're probably setting yourself up for failure. There's another one that consent plus desire also almost never works. Consent plus desire doesn't work because whenever we are trying to operate in, in, in engagement with our desires, we're typically giving in not to a planned idea of what we want to go, but to the whims of a moment. All right, does that make sense? So consent plus desire doesn't also work. It it, it often ends in lots of regret and mistake. And so he gives another formula based off of the scripture that that he says we should look at in terms of our formation and scriptural or spiritual formation when it comes to sexuality. Oh, I keep saying the word scriptural over and over. Sorry about that. Goofy slip of the tongue. Um, He gives this formula. It says this, vision plus the power of the Holy Spirit plus godly practices will result in our restoration to the image of God. I'm going to repeat that one again as well. The formula is vision plus the power of the Holy Spirit 
plus godly practices will result in our restoration to the image of God. I'm going to give a quick little quote from him. He goes on to explain what he means by that. He says, we get this vision of what sex is and what it's designed to do. We rely on the power of the Holy Spirit, which lives within us, producing the fruit of the Spirit. Does everyone remember? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and got that one memorized. There's like 18 songs. I've been trying to get it burnt into my kid's memory, right? And so the idea is that this vision, based off what God's uh, design is, interacts with the Holy Spirit that lives in us, right? Produces love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, the fruits of the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit, and he's pulling from other scripture, walking with the Spirit, not grieving the Spirit, acknowledging that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and then we begin to pattern our bodies in a way that delights, not grieves, and practices then become boundaries where our love is channeled towards restoration. I'm going to read that last part again. That when we get the vision right and the Holy Spirit power involved, then what we do is we pattern our bodies. This is the discipline part. Pattern our bodies in ways that delight, not grieve, and practices become boundaries where our love is channeled towards our restoration. Now, it's not easy, right? That's a very difficult thing to do. Uh, And I'll do one more quick quote as he defines that. Every choice we make about sex involves suffering because at some point we have to renounce a desire that's inside of us. Amen. Like, that's kind of the root of it. That's why this is so difficult. There's something deep in us, craving desire, that at some points are good, but often can get out of control. And this is one of those few disciplines in the Scripture, in the Bible, wherein God says, I want you to apply disciplines in here, but this one's hard because you actually have to renounce something that you desire. This is a part of taking up your cross, but it has the potential for deep, deep transformation. And so let me read the formula one more time. Vision, a godly vision of sexuality, plus the power of the Holy Spirit and all that that means, and then godly practices will result in the restoration to the image of God. Now, it's hard. It involves discipline. That word discipline often feels outdated, but it's not outdated to Jesus. It involves breaking of generational patterns, possibly. For those of you who one day found a magazine in a closet or under a bed somewhere, and couldn't turn those images off. Does that ring true? There's a breaking of generational patterns. There's a healing of past hurts and wounds because once again, hurt people hurt people, but heal people heal, right? There's a grace that transforms us. There's a joy and a delight in the victories when you can find those things. There's an invitation for community to enter in and hold us accountable if you're willing to enter into community that will hold you accountable and you're honest and transparent in those moments. And so what I want to do as we step into this is that over and over again in this teaching, I've tried to make us all aware I've tried to raise to the surface things that maybe go on behind the scenes that we haven't been paying attention to, and then try to help make sure that we are in our heart posture based in a way that that the church does not always take. Often the church is considered judgmental, pointing the finger at people. And so what I wanted us to do through, through these personal stories of mine, through examples, real life examples, through the admission of the failures and repentance at times on behalf of the church that we did on Sunday morning over the last few weeks, that we all need Jesus. 
that we all need to be redeemed from our broken sexual frameworks, our broken histories, and that goes as much for those who grew up in the church as it does on the outside of it. And so nobody outside of a delusional kind of pride can point out another sin and brokenness without first recognizing their need for grace before God. There are no superheroes at Common Ground Northeast, all right? So the church needs to be a safe place to be honest before God and to be renewed by him. But it's going to take intention to say, God, I want you to speak into this. I want you to be the main voice. Can you give me a right vision? Can you empower me by the Holy Spirit, God? And maybe, just maybe, you're going to need to invite some community around you to say, hey, I need you to hold me accountable to some things moving forward. Uh, sorry, moving forward. And so we, we ask, um, I, I want to stop and pray before we move on and just ask some, some, for some things from the Holy Spirit and ask God to speak to us today. Um, would you bow your heads with me? God, we ask for a tangible need for grace in combination with the authoritative word of God. And for those of us who maybe want to recognize and move forward or step out of some things that we've been struggling with and into a redemptive place inside of sexuality, God, would you just give us the ability and courage to do that today? Would you allow us to hold these two things in a powerful kind of tension that causes formation in a way that you would like to see us formed, God? We ask for this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Um, my hope is that today will be shorter than the last six sermons. <laughs> um, but I do want to get to some of the questions. And so what I want us to do just in these last few, um, uh, I guess, these last few minutes of this series together, I want to give a quick little summary and point, pull some things together because they will inform the questions. Um, but ultimately to point us back towards this formation idea. Um, and it'll come in really um, specifically uh, ap applicable when we get to the questions. And over the last few weeks, I tried to establish a biblical foundation anchored in the creation narrative of Genesis that is then later fulfilled and affirmed by the New Testament through Jesus and through Paul. That God created the gift of sexuality for us, but that he put some purposes behind that gift. And so I named illustration, which is this, uh, it is uh, it meant to happen, sexuality is meant to happen, take place inside of a covenant marriage between two people who are alike in their humanity but different in their sexuality. And this union becomes a walking, talking, living illustration of Christ as the groom in the church who is the bride. And the, third, the second one is procreation, that there is a mandate to be fruitful and multiply. And while we might have differences on how we engage that, what we have to do is not ignore the fact that that's there. And so in the negotiation of our sexuality, we have to not run from that, but ask God how and if we have fulfilled that mandate to be fruitful and multiply before procreation can be taken out of that equation. The third one was love, that sexuality is a physical expression of love, that love as defined by God is led more by faithful monogamous commitment and accompanied by emotion, not the other way around. That it is more about sacrificial giving than it is about receiving. And then finally, pleasure, which if you remember, I ran out of time. But the idea is this, one read through the Song of Solomon 
and, and, and it affirms everything we know about the bodily pleasures and sensory organs of our natural human cells, right? That there's a biophysiological release that engages both procreation and the hormones that aid in intimacy. And all of this is built together to kind of form um, this idea of the purpose, the four purposes of sexuality that we see um, echoed throughout Scripture. Now, I never wanted to hand you a new framework because I think the temptation is to say, okay, the purity culture framework didn't quite work. The cultural narrative didn't quite work out for us. So here's the right narrative. And so what I did is I wanted to show you how all four of those things work themselves like a story throughout the Bible. And the idea is to hand you materials, to hand you tools, not another structure that will inevitably will be found out as culturally bound and problematic at some point by our kids' generation, likely, all right? So I'm not trying to hand you new frameworks. What I'm trying to say is, here are the materials you're supposed to work with. Now you get to go and wrestle with the Holy Spirit and ask him, what do I do with these things, God? And I didn't want to, um, to, to create a temporary um, scaffolding, I guess is the word that I'm looking for. But these become biblical pillars, these four things. They become a theology of sexuality, knowing that any sexual ethic or framework that tries to define sexuality or build a, an application of sexuality that, that tries to overemphasize one of those four things or tries to omit one of those four things is then stepping outside of a biblical understanding of sexuality. All right? Does that make sense? I used a lot of words there, kind of maybe jumbled it up and, and um, made it worse. But, but let, me, let me say it a little bit more directly. So anything, any definition or application of your sexuality that either overemphasizes one of those four things or tries to omit it from the equation altogether has stepped outside of a biblical understanding of sexuality. Now, it's not a perfect grid. It's not a formula. It's not meant to be a, a, a perfect litmus test. But what it does is it allows us to use our real-life circumstances, which the Bible doesn't give specific commentary on all the time, but it take our real-life stuff and then decide, is my 21st century framework, my sexual ideologies, my topics, the applications, the desires I have, or the circumstances I live in that are not specifically dictated inside of the Scripture, it gives us these four things to look back and say, am I building and fortifying my sexual formation in the direction of these four things, or am I going in a completely different direction altogether? All right? And so that's what I want those four things to be used as. You get to build what that looks like. You apply it on your own. But all I want you to see is that if you overemphasize or take away one of those things, you've probably stepped outside of a biblical understanding of sexuality. And then last weekend, I offered up a, a paradigm to parse out um, kind of our responses. And it was specific to last week's topic, but I think it broadens itself and is actually applicable in a lot of different areas. And all I wanted you to do is in your response, you know, like as, as we deal with these theologies and as we deal with this um, you know, okay, if this is what God says, how does it work itself out in there? How do I apply these things? It's not going to always work out in an easy, um, you know, concise way. And so the context there was, so, so now what? Think, like, even if I agree with you, what do I do with that in real life? And so my, my, um, my advice, I guess, and my urging to you was to think in four different categories or lenses. 
that justice and civic engagement, sorry, that there's a justice which involves civic engagement response, there's a shepherding response, there's a missional response, there's a doctrinal response. And so I used it as the application in conversation, but I do think it, it plays out in other areas. And so I just want to give a quick little definition to those little things um, briefly, the, a tiny one-liner. So civic and justice engagement response involves the intersection of the church as it operates in a world uh, that is not necessarily Christian. So, so how do you expect others to uphold Christian ideals that are not intending to be Christian? Right? Who, who, what, it, what it ends up doing is often we force Christian ideology in a public or a civic, and by that I mean how we vote and, the, and the, the systems that we build in our government, right? That we will build them in a way that forces others to act Christian when they have not given any um, uh, desire to want to move in that direction anyways. And so how do you expect other people to uphold Christian ideals? And I think it's very challenging to consider maybe I'm not supposed to in some areas because it forces people to believe things or to act in a way under beliefs that are not necessarily ones that they have. And so what I wanted you to see is, though you may have a theological conviction, you might vote in a specific way that actually releases freedom to some people in certain areas because you don't want to cause marginalization in their world. So civic engagement is the way that you interact publicly with your Christian ideology and how you um, engage with the government and voting and civic duties, um, how those things that we believe interact with those topics out in the public world. The shepherding response is love all people, care for them, don't use the cover verses from the Bible, seek to understand before you jump to judgments, but here's the most important one. How do, you, how do shepherding accommodations play a part in this? And that's going to work its way out, I think, with these questions more directly. And then the missional response. There's always been this missional negotiation that takes place when someone begins to enter the kingdom of God. And as we came to know Jesus, we had to let things go. You didn't just switch overnight. And so there's a point where you are trying to learn what you believe and where do you get to belong inside of the church before you necessarily believe. Or maybe you've decided you don't agree with something. And so there's this missional engagement um, and then I wanted you all to hear that the first three have a lot, I feel like a lot of flexibility. It's just that third one that I don't think has a whole lot of flexibility. And so given what we've walked through over the last few weeks, um, I want us to, to consider how these things apply in a few different areas based on some questions that were sent in um, during the Google form. Um, but again, this is where we trust God and decide to submit or not to submit in formation. This is where we move into a direction that has, uh, that God has given us in his divine wisdom, a design for sexuality and what it's supposed to be, what, it is suppo- what the purposes exist for, and will we trust him in the directives to define our flourishing as humanity and a pattern that God has given for us. So here is the first question that, um, that was sent in. It says, um, How is, and celibate is in quotes, celibate defined in regard to celibate gay Christians, singles, and even priests? Does that allow for masturbation or just mean not acting out sex with the same sex for those who are gay and no sex for single straight people? 
Now, I think because the language used in the quote that was given, it's in direct response to our statement of faith on marriage. I'm going to read that one more time, not to overdo it, but just so you know that, like, kind of the context that I think the question is in. It says, we recognize that all persons are made in the image of God and are to reflect that image in the community of believers in home and in society. We believe in the family, celibate singleness, and faithful heterosexual marriage as the patterns God designed for us. Genesis is what's referenced there. And so here's what I want us to do. Given all the things that I mentioned earlier, I think there's a little bit of an application that's going to take place over and over with the next three or so questions. And it's this. We are always very concerned with what is permissive. What am I allowed to do? How far can I take this? And I want to retrain us to ask this question. What is what I believe about sex or what I am doing? How is it shaping me? All right? Think about that question. How is what I believe about sex and what I am doing sexually, how is it shaping who I am? And is it moving me towards Jesus or away from Jesus? All right? And so I think this is an overarching theme that we need to keep re-bringing into this conversation. And what I want to do then is kind of a a couple of common answers to this. Um, And I won't give you where I believe it's just my opinion, not necessarily the opinion of the elders. I'll try to distinguish between those two. Um, different things. So celibate off, obviously means um, no, uh, no sexual act, right? And so the question really, I think here, is getting at the heart of, for those who are asked to be celibate, and in this question it says whether they are um, straight or gay, um, and then uh, inside of this situation, is there permission for masturbation? Does it include that you also cannot do that? Now, what I want to say is um, the first time I heard somebody give a teaching in a church about masturbation, they quoted um, Genesis 38, which is Onan, who is not uh, just contextually, it has nothing to do with masturbation. All right? It has absolutely nothing to do with it. And so I want to remove that because I didn't hear until later on there is a um, kind of a known idea here. Um, you know, what if I can imagine someone else? Is it really lust? If it's not a person and I'm not sinning against a person, would that be okay? And that was later on something that a, a leader, a Christian leader, had asked me about. Um, and so what, I, what I'll say is the, the question for me, again, goes back to maybe it's permissible It's possibly permissible, but even so, even if it is, the question is, how is it shaping me? By engaging in this, is it bringing me towards Christ or is it bringing me away from Christ? And and so then you also have to engage, like, what are your thoughts going into this situation? And are they just teaching me um, uh, private self-gratification where in a sexual relationship is meant to be a give and take, and now you are training and discipling your heart and your mind towards self-gratification and to do that without someone else, which is the way it was designed for. And so I think that that can be a problem and at least a question that needs to be asked. What often happens, though, and I'll refer to the shepherding shepherding, uh, lens, is is this. Sometimes pastors will say... um, Look, so that it's, they're probably going to be fornicating if not masturbating. Does that make sense? Am I, are you kind of tracking with this? And so the idea is I'm going to give them a shepherding accommodation that even though maybe this isn't the best idea, it's better than a worse situation, meaning fornication. And so that would be considered a pastoral accommodation. I struggle because it doesn't take away the idea of the pattern that you're training your mind towards which I would say has more to do with selfishness than maybe we're willing to admit. But I would also say there is maybe a matter of this where you take this up with the Holy Spirit 
Um, and uh, I will apply at the end of, of Romans 14 after a long debate of can we eat the food de- that was dedicated to idols and demons or can we not? And they say, I'm not sure, but this is, this is what the ending says. Be convinced fully in your mind. And if you are not and you're acting out on it, it is still sin. All right? Anything not of faith is sin. So this is what I would say. You need to pray about that. I don't have a pastoral recommendation. I get the accommodation and why that could be helpful. It also doesn't quite sit well with me personally. But I will say um, that, the, uh, that the idea, because I can't quite give it a 100% answer on this one, I'll say pray and ask the Holy Spirit what is okay. But if you are not 100% convinced, then you probably need to abstain, all right? Um, Now, this question really flows into the next one, which is, um, I have friends who have sexual fantasies and think that there is nothing wrong with them if they don't actually act on them. From my conservative Christian background, I question whether it is right at all to have sexual fantasies, even if just involving my spouse. Are Christians really free to have them if it doesn't involve lust? And there's actually going to be a definition of lust in the next part of their question. Once again... We're often concerned with what are we allowed to do versus how is what we're doing shaping us. And I want to bring that right to the forefront once again. All right, so how is what we're doing shaping us? So is it, it, there, what we have to do is to think about the way Jesus has engaged that if you have done, some, or sorry, if you have thought of something, it's as bad as doing it um, in real life, right? If you've killed someone or murdered someone or injured them, it's as bad as if you did it in real life. I do believe that's hyperbolic, but I don't believe that it's completely... Uh, it's hyperbolic to make a point, and that point is you still need to control your thought life, right? And so I wouldn't say, again, maybe there's a pastoral accommodation that could be applied to. I probably feel a little less um, comfortable with that one, as, or a little more comfortable with, um, with this one than I do in the, in the last one because there's not an action being taken. But I would say, once again, are these fantasies stirring your affections for what would be considered a legitimate sexual relationship, or are they not? Are they stirring your affections away from your spouse if you're in a married relationship? Or are you just uh, accommodating self-gratification and and, uh, discipling and and creating um, selfishness in your own heart for that situation? Now, I I, I would say there's probably also a little bit of ambiguity here um, outside of control your thought life, right? To take those things and to bring them under control. And so I would say, kind of in the end of that, um, the sexual fantasies, uh, surely if it's not your spouse, you're probably in bad territory. Um, if it is, I would say, are you in some way uh, conditioning your heart and mind um, to have a, rela- a sexual relationship with your spouse outside of your spouse? That would also be, for me, probably problematic. All right? Again, I'll say that as my opinion because I, I, don't, I don't quite know where, where some of our other leadership would be on that one. The, the next one pours into this. Um, I also have been hearing that lust, the term lust, has really been defined wrong by fundamental Christians. They claim that the root word goes back to the meaning of taking always of a person from their spouse. Now, I know that the wording is a little strange, but that lust specifically refers to if you are taking from somebody else's spouse, they're married to someone else. And that is specifically how lust is defined. How does this compare to Jesus's meaning um, that even thinking about it was doing it? So I've already addressed the idea of what Jesus says in that idea. Um, I am not 
personally familiar with this definition, and I actually don't have an answer for it at all. I tried to look it up and even see where that um, definition was prominent or read an article to see where that is, that lust is defined that way. So whoever wrote that, I'm sorry. I can maybe look it up some more and try to have some other answers for you. But I'm not as familiar with that definition of lust, and I don't see a reason that it would be specifically deemed just towards um, lusting would be meaning towards you taking away of another person's spouse like David and Bathsheba. Um, the next one, and there's only a couple more. Um, so here's, this is probably the most common one. What about same-sex marriages, monogamous relationships, all right? Um, so I think both, both the answers that get you to a, a positive on this is a pastoral accommodation. Um, it's maybe not the best case scenario according to the scriptures, but it's better than somebody being in kind of a... Um, uh, you know, a, a, a promiscuous kind of relationship. And so what they'll say is if, if you have a conviction that um, somebody of the same sex shouldn't be married, even some pastors who believe that will marry them because it's better than the worst case scenario. All right? I know that's kind of a goofy maybe um, uh, way to do that. And so that's one of the ways that, tends to, that, that we tend to get to kind of a positive inside of that. Um, I, I would say I've already answered this question through the definitions that I've given. I believe that in Genesis, it is specifically referring to a human in likeness, but a sexually different person in the definition for marriage. So I believe marriage by definition is um, not a same-sex marriage. Now, let me, let me counter that a little bit with the civic response. That doesn't always mean that, uh, that somebody needs to vote against that legally because of the level of marginalization that can occur between that. But you do need to wrestle with that in the Holy Spirit and ask God, is that an okay way to respond? All right? Um, I know I, I don't leave, I, there's not a lot of time for me to catch responses here, but I'll, I'll be more than happy to explain more of that on the other side. Um, and so the idea for me, what about same-sex marriages, monogamous relationships? Um, I personally have a conviction that I don't think I could uh, put my kind of stamp of approval for this reason. I don't believe um, what it would be confirming or solidifying is what God means um, for righteous marriage, if that, you know, I, I, without any other better wording to, to put on that. Um, and so that would be my response to that. The, this, um, the, I think this is the next question, um, but it, it's, it says this, I appreciate the four responses presented, doctrinal, missional, shepherding, justice, and civic, versus just not versus being just affirming or non-affirming. But what does this mean for those at Common Ground Northeast who believe otherwise regarding to the doctrinal response? There's three follow-up questions, and, and then we'll be done for the day um, on this same question. So this is, this is what I think, and this is probably a common question that we have out there, so I appreciate those who, who threw it in. Um, I don't expect everyone agrees with our statement of belief that attends Common Ground Northeast. I do think there are points of leadership, and this is the next question, can they participate? So this, this is the they is somebody who is, I think, in a gay relationship. Can they participate in leadership, teaching, and serving in other ways? And is there a place for a married gay couple at our church to participate fully, leadership, teaching, and serving? So, um, so we, as, a, as, a, um, as an eldership, have not fully identify where we believe somebody has to be in agreement with our statement of faith versus where they can serve inside of our church. We do know that we want to be more lenient than maybe very conservative churches tend to be on this topic, but I personally believe that there's probably some areas of leadership that need to be reserved for those who can fully put their, like, I agree with your statement of faith 100%. 
all right? And so I, obviously eldership is one of those that I believe needs to be kind of in that world. Um, I also think that those who might be in a teaching position, I, I don't think it's as big a deal in the, in the children's area, um, but for those of us who are teaching doctrines at Common Ground Northeast, outside of, we have very specific areas that we're okay with bringing in people that disagree with us, blatantly even, because that's a part of our growth mindset or our learning um, mindset. But what I want you to, to hear is um, we haven't decided as elders I, I personally believe elders, probably teaching leaders, those who are picking songs out for our worship time, you can, um, you know, there, there's plenty of room, I think, for musicians and even vocalists, um, and I know that those definitions, I've been in other churches where those definitions got really weird, um, but for me, uh, if you're choosing our liturgy, there's a teaching component to that through, the, through the, the songs that we pick out, and then those who shepherd in our house churches. Um, again, our, our, our eldership has not solidified those, that's just where I believe kind of those lines um, should be uh, created inside of that. And so um, I believe that um, I, I want, in as much as it's possible, for a married gay couple at our church to participate in all of those areas um, until it gets to the point where the statement of belief is required for somebody um, to, uh, to kind of lead out in whatever given situation there is. Um, I will say, uh, and it's interesting because the... the the, every church has its own culture, and where I have, for, very, for, for more of the progressive people in our church, <laughs> you're like, oh, you drew some lines I didn't want you to draw. I will say that the four sermons leading up to those would have gotten me fired at our last church probably because it pushed on the conservative boundaries way more than any of them would have been comfortable with. So do know that this is a, a hard attempt to live into this gray area, not compromising what God has said is truth, but also to be as, as loving and as uh, accommodating where the scriptures will let us do that in all three of those other categories, missionally and shepherding and in civic areas. I think there's lots of negotiation where these things apply. But for me, um, as we look at the scripture and the doctrinal, the centralized idea of where the doctrine of what Jesus is saying and the Bible is saying directly, I just don't see the wiggle room inside of that or that kind of flexibility. And I do believe that that should be informing how we engage in the other three aspects, all right? And not the other way around. Um, Okay, I have some final thoughts. We're at 44 minutes in this sermon, um, which is already longer than I had planned to talk today. So let me just make these final thoughts, and I want to invite us to pray over our church um, on the other side of this series. Uh, these are the final things. Um, many of you have asked me for notes. I will make those notes available. I've emailed them to some of you. I will make those notes available online. Um, they may not be very um, organized because they're just kind of my notes dropped into a Google Doc. Um, and it's filled with links and different ideas and a lot of stuff that I didn't get to, so just know that. Um, so, so for those of you who asked about notes, I'll make those available. Um, if you want to dig deeper into these topics presented, because believe it or not, as I've tried to push a lot into one sermon, and in some cases, uh, a sermon and a half on a Sunday morning, um, these were still just the introductory versions of these topics, and very surface. Um, my wife will be teaching once again. She's done it once. It'll be capped at 20 people, so if you're interested, you need to sign up. Um, but we, uh, she teaches and hosts a class on sexual ethics. It is an academic kind of study, all right? Not, not so much of you processing your life and the things going on in your world, but an academic study about the scripture and sexual ethics throughout history. If you're interested in that, that'll be offered, I think, the second or third week of January and for about 10 weeks after that. Um, and we'll probably make some, some room for some breaks inside of that. 
It's discussion-based, so just know that coming into that, um, that's what you're getting into. Uh, but then there's one more resource I think we need to pay attention to. Um, if you've had during some moment in this a point where you're like, I need to talk more about processing my life and my feelings and where I'm at, and maybe I've got some healing or some things that need to be dealt with that have gotten stirred up by this um, past series, uh, Common Ground, I believe, started this ministry. It is now called Journey USA. It was called Living Streams if you were a part of um, you know, Midtown. But Journey USA is a community-based, Christ-centered discipleship ministry that exists to help people find hope and live life through experiencing Jesus in their relationships, sexuality, and identity. Um, you can go, I think it's journeyusa or usajourney.com. We'll, we can definitely get that link out to you. But if there's a part of you that says, I need to process this in a different way, there's plenty of people in our church who have gone through some version of this that highly recommend it. And so if, this is, if I'm describing you, I want to tell you, check it out, if it's something that would be helpful to you. Um, but that'll be different from the class that, that, um, that my wife teaches um, which is kind of a different subject. But um, if you have any other questions that you want to discuss with a leader, elder, or pastor, feel free to reach out. And finally, if there's anything in this series I said that was offensive, it was never my heart to just be, um, uh, to be provocative for the sake of being provocative or to just cause people to be concerned or be upset about something. And so if there's something that I said that maybe even needs an apology for or explanation of what did you mean when you said something along the way, I want to invite you, please don't just quietly leave the church, right? Because this is difficult stuff, and part of what makes Common Ground us is we're Common Ground. We stick together through difficult conversations. In fact, if you're here still after a lot of the conversations we've had about justice and reconciliation, you've had to have some grit of walking through some very difficult conversations at times and confronting things inside of yourself that maybe you weren't ready to deal in. And I would say on the flip side, if you're on the more progressive side of this coin, you likely heard some things that you didn't like. Will you have the grit to stick with it and fight this out with us and have these conversations and come to some understandings together uh, and I am just saying I am open, as open as you need me to be, um, to grab coffee, to go get lunch with, uh, and to have further explanations, or maybe even just, maybe I said something that was um, overstated and needs some apology for it. Okay, um, we're going to sing one more song. I'm going to invite you all to stand up with me right now, and I'm going to pray uh, a blessing over us as a church. I want to invite you to come into agreement with that blessing based on the first verses um, that, we, uh, that we introduced uh, and I'll hang out here for a little bit afterwards if you had any other questions. Um, would you put your hands out just like this in a receiving way? I'm not going to put words in your mouth that will make you mad, I promise. Um, but I'm going to pray over us this blessing um, that I just believe is powerful in, uh, in inviting Jesus' voice into our lives for this. Uh, now may we take what we have learned and condition it by the love of Jesus Christ. May we be formed into the likeness of Jesus Christ in all areas of our lives, building with that which is useful and shedding that which is not. May we love well as we lean into the grace that we have freely received and now are able to freely give. And God, may you make us truth tellers because we have been transformed by your truth. May you make us healers because we have been healed by the great physician. May we become reconcilers because we have been reconciled. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've taught, Lord. I do pray, God, that the tone was received in a way that was loving and embracing, uh, but still has us struggling and wrestling with the things that you have said for our personal discipleship, God. 
Ultimately, whether people in this room agree with me or online agree with me or not, um, God, I pray that they come to a point of peace in knowing that you have something to say in this conversation and that they're willing to surrender and trust you with that, God, uh, and come at rest with wherever um, it is that you have them, Jesus. God, I love this community and the ability to talk about conversations that many people avoid. Would you continue to make us a church that does that but also loves well? And we ask for this right now in the name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen.